So, Mark. Yes? This week's movie basically begins and ultimately largely ends by reading aloud from a, a tiny little seashell phone or e-reader. The honestly worst shaped smartphone I've ever seen or e-reader. Yeah, it's one or the other. It's not clear which. It's not a real thing that existed. No. That's a, a compact mirror from the 60s that they, for the movie, turned into a phone or e-reader, specifically because they didn't want any real phone that would ground it in a particular moment in time. It's pretty cool. Anyway, twice in this movie, we are read to from the little pink seashell from the novel The Idiot. And so I was wondering, what is your favorite case of reading aloud from or quoting literature in a movie? So this is kind of a cop-out, but to be true to me and to speak Is it going to be the Jane Austen book club, Mark? No. To speak truly to my experience, my answer is anytime they sing a song that Tolkien wrote in Elvish, in (laughs) Elvish, in the movies, The Lord of the Rings. Yeah, I don't think that really counts. Well, they are quoting literature in universe because it's pre-written literature that they are then quoting. And if we were to follow Tolkien, that means it's a quote in a movie from a book that is quoted in a book that is then translated into another book. This is a ridiculous answer. I couldn't think of anything, but every time that they read passages from the Lord of the Rings in the Lord of the Rings movies, it points out how ridiculous the Lord of the Rings the book is. Because it is always funny when they start using words like Elbereth and Valinor in the context of the movies where you have no frame of reference for it. I mean, but that's... At that point, it becomes, like, the original Star Wars, where it's just giving a sense of history yeah. or culture, like, beyond what's in the movie. That, that's good. I, I mean, I love it. I just think the names are always funny. Do you know Frodo's real name? Wait, is Frodo not his real name? Uh, is it is it Frodogar Frodogon? <laughs> <laughs> no. So, you know the thing that he, like, has translated Westron into Old English? That Frodo has or Tolkien has? Tolkien has, you know, the idea that he found this text and has translated it. So according to Tolkien, Frodo's real name is Maura Labingi, and he translates that to Frodo Baggins into using Old English. What? Checks out. I got no, I got no questions. If you look up the Westron names from Lord of the Rings, they are all so funny. What is the source for these? These are not in the books that I read, at least as near as I remember. These are from, like, the history and peoples of Middle-earth. I think I'm going to start referring to all the stuff I put together for the podcast, like my notebooks and my, like, digital notes and all the scripts and episodes and stuff. I'm just going to start calling it the Redmond Legendarium. (laughs) I think you can claim it. As far as I can tell, there are no rules for declaring what is and is not a legendarium. I mean, it's not a regulated term by the FDA. Here's some other good ones. Uh, Samwise Gamgee is Banazir Galbazi. Mary is Kalimak Brandagamba. And Pippin <laughs> is Razanor Took. I'm sorry. He has the same last name, but his original name is Razanor? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I love it. I love Tolkien so much. What a weird dude. I know. Why do they all sound a little Italian? Labingi, Galbazi, Brandagamba, except for Tuk. What if Goodfellas, but with those names? And they're played by the Lord of the Rings Hobbit actors as hobbits. So I also went with an answer that I felt was kind of silly, which is at the fake funeral for Bruce Wayne at the end of The Dark Knight Rises. <laughs> I think it's Gary Oldman, but it might be Michael Caine. I think it's Gary Oldman reading aloud from A Tale of Two Cities at Bruce Wayne's gravestone, which I like because there's something deeply pretentious about it, but that movie is so messy, but it's messy in a way that I love where it's so ludicrously ambitious for still being a Nolan Batman movie that I'm like, yeah, of course, you gotta end with Dickens. You gotta go as big as you possibly can. Like, the only way to go bigger would be like in, uh, I think it's Star Trek Six in the Undiscovered Country, where the Klingons quote Shakespeare and refer to him as the great Klingon poet Shakespeare. Now that's just good writing. That movie, like, it's like they, I don't know who wrote it, but like decided that the funny thing would be in the 23rd century, 
all these cultural ideas still exist, but the thread of where they come from has kind of been lost. So also Spock quotes the old Vulcan proverb, only Nixon could go to China. <laughs> That's a like, good line. That would be a Vulcan proverb. That's Neither a Nixon good line. nor China are Vulcan. <laughs> I'm obsessed with that. Oh my God. That is kind of a fun idea of the sort of malappropriate, malappropriate, what is the word? Malappropriatism? Yes, that word. I love in Star Trek how they have references to like classical music that is just music of the 60s in that era. And then they don't make up anything in between. Like sci-fi today would make references to something that happened, you know, like in the 2100s more. You do get the genetics wars of the 1990s. That's where Khan comes from. See, but that's like plot based. You don't get as much just like random cultural things made up to build the world. I mean, that's the big problem with Ready Player One is the idea that no culture created after like 1995 would have any resonance at all. Yeah. You know, I I feel like I was playing Horizon Zero Dawn. I mean, I still am. But that's something that they kind of do a good job of. I mean, I don't think it's like a perfect game, but every now and then they'll like list, like there's specifically this like list of dictators at one moment. They talk about like Pol Pot, I think Hitler, Mussolini, and then they throw in like one or two other names that we That's don't what you know. always do. You're like two that you know and one made up thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I really like Horizon Zero Dawn. Forbidden West was good too. Mark, you need to watch Star Trek Four. I should watch at least a Star Trek movie. Star Trek 4 sounds like a good choice, because I don't know what it is. I mean, it's not the best one. The best one is Wrath of Khan. Mm -hmm. At least of the originals. I have not seen any of the next-gen movies. But Star Trek 4, The Voyage Home, is the one where the crew of the Enterprise, they are reconstituted, they've gotten Spock back, and they are headed back to Earth. And in the process, they accidentally travel through time... And they arrive in not San Francisco, the head of Starfleet, but San Francisco of the 1980s when the movie was shot. And the crew of the Enterprise has to figure out how to blend in and get home. That's just a sitcom. Yes, that's what it is. It's just like a comedy Star Trek movie? That's exactly what it is. Okay, I'm intrigued. One thing I will say, watching Star Trek Lower Decks, which I have started, is I had forgotten that in this universe earth still exists because i'm so used to like dune and battlestar galactica where earth is a myth and they were just like back on earth and i was like it took me a second to realize that that was just a place where humans lived still yeah it's where starfleet headquarters is but uh caleb what about a movie where they quote literature (laughs) oh yeah back on back on on that uh we can keep talking about star trek if you want Hey, I will always be happy to. But to to answer your your first question, I immediately thought of there's this like Canadian, I assume it's an indie film called One Week. And it's just, it's so, I mean, I saw that. This is an adaptation of the classic song, right? Yeah, it's Canadian in indie. It must be based off the Bare Naked Lady song. It's the only thing I can accept. 100% has chicken and um yeah no it's this one movie where uh this guy he he it's like an english teacher he's told he has cancer has one week to live so he like does what everybody does he buys a motorcycle and starts traveling cross country he last Um, holidays starring queen latifah exactly but as an english teacher i think what kind of I think it, it opens the movie and it's kind of a running threat is the poem Ulysses by Tennyson. Mm-hmm. And it's just one of my, it's, it was my first exposure to it. And it's just become one of my favorite poems since um, just because so much of it, you know, deals with, you know, drinking life to the lees and, and, and things like that. And I think it just kind of really blends into the theme of the movie very well. Really great movie. Really enjoyed it. I'm actually not sure if I watched it back, how good I would think it is now. Cause I watched it in high school and I think my taste uh, has probably changed a little bit. So uh, that's mine. For some reason, I don't know why. This just made me think of, there's a really lovely movie from 2018 called Hearts Beat Loud. Oh, great With Nick movie. Offerman as like a single dad who's like trying to start a band with his daughter. Fantastic movie. Yeah, it's I've a, seen It's that. a really sweet movie. And in it, they do something that is like, Quite unusual, which is they quote a comic book. The daughter's girlfriend quotes Saga to her. Oh, Whoa. is that right? I actually forgot about that. They don't call out what it is. They just like quote it. And the girl's like, that's really smart. And the girlfriend is like, eh, it's from a comic book I read. And I was sitting there with my mom and I was like, wait, I know, I know what this is. What was it? Like, what was it about? Do you remember? 
Uh, I don't. Have to, I mean, I would obviously recognize it in the movie, but uh, I'll figure out what it is and I'll put it on Twitter. Is it some quote about like war and differences between people? No, it's from. I think it's from uh, the dance teacher. Oh yeah, Saga coming back. Theoretically, Saga is back. It's back. It's back. Oh, I didn't know. I don't really follow. Saga came back in news. January. It's just I think all of I think all of us read it in collected editions. Yes. I read it in the giant hardcovers that come out like every two years. They honestly probably should have just released a collection because everyone's going to wait and then the sales numbers will seem lower than they should be. Yeah, I haven't looked at comic book sales numbers since Saga came back. So I have no idea how it's selling. It, it is a thing where like in the initial run of Saga, like every week that it came out was a huge deal and like everybody was at least kind of aware of the deal. Like I knew who lying cat was as a comics reader before I had read saga. And since it came back in January, it does kind of feel like it's just there and like, it's not on the same level. And I think it is because so much of the readership for it now is in collected editions. Mm-hmm. Like I read it as one big volume. You got that big compendium. Mm-hmm. Thanks Suzanne. A wonderful Christmas gift. Yeah, no, I, um, even for me, like, I, I've read a lot of Saga, but there was always just so much of it that, like, and so many other comics I was trying to read that I, I kind of dropped it for a little bit. I think uh, Melissa got, my wife, uh, who's who's been on the pod before, she's, like, read up until the break, and I actually, I need to, I need to catch back up myself, too, because I didn't, I didn't realize it was even, even back. It's just so good. You can borrow my compendium if you would like. Oh, I just have to track down who I, I gave that, that to. <laughs> Well, once you do, I, w- I would gladly know. Thank you very much for the offer. Also, the DC Public Library, I'm pretty sure, has it. So this is uh, episode 37 of Saga Cast, where we talk about Saga <laughs> and Star Trek. We have talked about nothing remotely related to the actual, like, vibe of this movie. We did talk about the seashell cell phone. I just mean in terms of, like, tone, message, genre... So maybe we should dive in. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. This is a podcast dedicated to examining the least important issue facing the world today. Does Hollywood, or in this case, independent movie romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable or even likable? I thought about saying likable. You can cut it. (laughs) I might keep it if you're cool with that. Yeah. Uh, It doesn't matter... If the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation, we will dig in and see what's there. And this week, thanks to a Twitter suggestion from our listener, Connor, we are being joined by our friend Caleb to talk about the 2015 horror movie, It Follows. Hey there. I'm happy to be back. Uh, you probably heard heard uh, me uh, earlier in the episode. Nice to be back. <laughs> um, so, Caleb, you're back specifically because on our She's the Man episode back in March... You said that you have been trying to get more into horror movies. That is 100% the case because I've always like read about them and how good they are. But I've always been such a scaredy cat that I just haven't taken the time or wanted to because I like I had a nightmare just from like the trailers of it. You know, I, I like I'm such a baby. I was always scared of the dark. I still kind of am now ish like if if I'm like alone at home, but I've always you know, read about and heard like how deep often they are and, and thematically and, and, and how much room for thought there is. And so I've been kind of more and more getting to the forays and I think kind of my gateway drug, I think maybe like a lot of people who, who maybe hadn't watched before is um, Jordan Peele's work, like Us, Get Out, um, where there's still some humor, some lightness to it, but it's so just brilliant. And um, so it, it, it that's kind of inspired me to get more and more into, I think, the horror genre of movies i think we are in similar boats where we did not grow up watching a lot of horror movies that's right for you mark right Mm -hmm. that is correct i'm just always very struck by the fact that like the dominant horror at the time we were really coming of age as moviegoers was the saw franchise yes oh wow sorry i was just thinking that wow and so like when we would go to the movies and we'd see trailers for horror movies we were seeing trailers for exultantly gory slasher movies and that's mm-hmm. kind of the main genre that we were being presented with. And I mean, yeah, apparently no, really even Saw has a lot of, it's like much deeper than people give it credit for. I don't know. I still haven't watched any Saw. <laughs> I can't do Saw, but I've listened to more than one podcast about Saw out of curiosity to learn. And the plot sounds not bad, but I don't know if and I can And to be clear, is this Saw gore. or the book of Saw? 
uh, all of the Saw movies. And it's like, apparently they do dip and peak. Like, there's some that are too gory and just revel in the gore while forgetting the social commentary. Because I didn't realize, apparently the point of the Saw Traps is actually for people to escape and learn a life lesson. That is how the creator <laughs> perceives them. That is weird. Because it only happens to bad people. Or people he thinks are bad. Okay, interesting. Maybe we should do a saw. Maybe. I'll watch with my hand. I'll watch through my fingers with my hands over my eyes. <laughs> I feel like a formative experience for us pushing ourselves is when we held hands through Annihilation. And that's not even re- like a true horror movie. It's scary, but it's no. like not a horror film. But yeah, that, that screaming bear. It was really just the screaming bear. Everything else was fine. Caleb, I think you were trying to say something. Oh yeah, no, just um I, I actually I, I, I haven't watched Annihilation, but I did look at that scene specifically. Terrifying. But um yeah, on the on the like saw stuff, I think that's such a really good point. Cause I mean I've been in the room once or twice as people wanted to watch it and I was just like wouldn't deal with it. Like that and hostile sort of like gore violence. And I think around that time, God, Eli Roth, I think is remember they called it like the Splat Pack or something. The people who would who would make those really really gory movies, and it to me, gore is especially one of the worst things for me in a movie, especially a horror movie. But other than that, like yeah, I, I do remember, funny gore really well, right? Mm-hmm. I think funny gore is really funny. I will say we haven't even mentioned Human Centipede, which came out at a formative age for all of us, like like right as we were in high school. That definitely has colored my perception of the horror genre. Right. It was the gross out horror is the stuff that we were aware of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Though as a kid, when I was really, really young, it was stuff like The Ring and Grudge. And I think my my dad watched The Ring once when I was really young. And I like kind of only saw a little bit of it. I had like panic attacks for like a few months just at night thinking about The Ring. You know, and so it's like pre pre like the gore and stuff. It was like. I don't know, to me, extra creepy, extra scary, which is, I think, still hard that, like, I'm not very good with, and then right into the gore for for sure. I think It Follows is an interesting thing for us to bring into this conversation because along with gay icon The Babadook, it's one of the, like, forerunner movies of the whole elevated horror period. The Ari Aster, Jordan Peele. Right, neither of whom had, had started making features at the point this movie comes out, but... I think Aster in particular has kind of become the symbol of elevated horror slash is it a thing? Yeah. I did not realize how old this movie was. Yeah, it was at the 2014 Cannes Film Festival out of competition. And then it premiered in March of 2015. Open to, you know, the box office. I mean, the technology and the design is such that you can't place it in time, but it does feel in terms of, like, tone and composition and all that, kind of ahead of its time. What do you mean? I don't know. It feels closer to the late 2010s horror than 2014, which is still kind of the era of the slasher, and zombies were really big in 2014, too. Sure, and of course, slashers haven't gone away. This is coming out around the same time that the Purge movies are starting. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, this is sort of presaging a period where horror is shifting away from the gory and the gross out into a more ponderous tone, which is not an entirely new thing. I mean, I think this movie really heavily recalls the John Carpenter stuff Mm -hmm. of the turn of the 80s, especially Halloween. Yes. I mean, even the score of this sounds a lot like... Oh, yeah, this is very much referential to Halloween. And so this is a movie that feels like it's projecting forward to this period of of elevated horror, whatever that is, but also connected back to that point in the history of horror, which I think contributes to that sense of timelessness, or not necessarily timelessness, but not being rooted in one particular time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do think that is one of the fascinating things that even in like the cinematography and, and the kind of the language of that, you know, in my head, I think of kind of some of the like wide angle shots, some of the the slowness of the moving of the camera. Like it is reminiscent of, of that. Like I even think about like, you know, to me, I couldn't help but kind of think about like maybe even Children of the Corn, but also kind of the original George A. Romero, like Night of the Living Dead. Oh, yes. Which, you know, which itself, you know, kind of is obviously about more than just zombies. You know what I mean? Like there, it, it, it's, it still feels very rooted into almost the, the history of the genre. 
It's interesting that this movie doesn't even have a monster in terms of, like, actual art. It's just actors. You mean, like, there's not, like, an iconic monster look in the yeah. like, Jason Voorhees way? Yeah. Or Michael Myers or Freddy Krueger. Like, there's no attempt to create a monster besides a concept, which I like. Yeah, I think that's the most interesting thing the movie has going for it, that it could be anything. Just this sort of mm-hmm. death creeping up behind you inexorably. The it. <laughs> the it that is following. Right, the unspecified it. So I'm, I'm curious, given all this... I think this movie was a new one for all of us. Mm-hmm. This is yeah. my first time watching it. Yeah, so what did you all think of it? I really liked it. I thought it was very enjoyable. I thought it was creepy. I thought the performances were good. I thought she was giving a, the main actress was giving a good performance of, you know, the scared, haunted scream queen being followed. I liked how minimal it was in terms of, you know, no monster. It's just a, a person. That can't die, but is death. What did you think? Um, I liked it okay. Uh, I wasn't as high on it as I'd hoped to be in part. Just because, like, I think the idea of the monster is very cool. But, I don't know. I think that I was more interested in the monster and in the mechanics of figuring out how to avoid the monster. And the ethics of (laughs) passing the monster on. That's what I liked, too. Is the thinking about the morals of it. That's the most compelling idea for me. and. I found myself frustrated by how uninterested the movie was in that for a lot of the time. Yeah. So I felt like I kept waiting for it to get to the part that I wanted it to be dealing with. I don't know. There were times where I very much felt this as an early screenplay by a guy. It's the second screenplay by David Robert Mitchell, mm-hmm. who also directed it. And for me, there were points that felt clunky, like the parking garage sequence Yeah, is just bizarre. And so at the point where I was really trying to get on board, I was having a hard time doing it. But I still enjoyed a lot of the ideas that were at play. I'm sorry, the parking garage sequence, for some reason, that isn't bringing... Are you thinking this is when... The underpass? Jeff first... I think it's in a parking garage? When Je- when he has her tied up in the wheelchair? Oh, in the wheelchair. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. That's, I think it's, like, under a highway. I don't know. They were up on, like, a hill and something. See, yeah, I thought it was, like, an abandoned building. Either way, I, I, I hear you. I definitely hear you in that I don't think the, like... I, there are elements of it that, that are, are very much like, okay, young writer, young director, the, the you know, writing isn't always great. But I will say, at least for me, I, I liked it. I thought it was good. And I think it's for me because it made me feel some things. It made me think about things that – and for me, I, and maybe my bar is kind of low. If a movie gets me thinking about things other than the movie, like about life, about death, about – being an adult and the kind of, you know, existential dread of understanding we're going to die. You know what I mean? That to me, I thought the movie did that really well. It captured feelings. And I think I remember reading how for, I, I think the director, I cannot, you mentioned his name earlier. And for reason, David Robert just, Mitchell. David Robert Mitchell. He had mentioned that like, you know, it's, it is more of a, a dream language because this is a nightmare in a lot of ways. Um, and, and it's, well, he said think, it's literally inspired by a childhood nightmare of just being followed. Exactly, you know, and and I think to me that is something that works very well about it. Um, and especially, you know, there's something about the sort of mundanity, banality of just like a person walking towards you slowly, and yet the more in the movie you see just somebody walking in a straight line towards the protagonist, suddenly I'm overcome with it and anxiety, you know. I have not seen a movie in a while that has raised a moral conundrum for me that I have not solved and still think about. And I like that. I respect that about this movie for sure. We're like the morality of passing it on. I haven't. I, I feel there's no conclusive answer. Right. You kind of you have to ask whether Jeff, the boyfriend from the beginning of the movie, has actually taken the most moral option which is pass it on and be very clear to the next person here's what you do here's what is happening and just to keep the chain going because it's not like if you die the curse ends it just goes back to someone else so someone else still dies unless the chain is continued so what you're saying is jeff is the hero of the movie no i'm not saying that because i'm also not convinced by that (laughs) argument either well i do think there's something to be said about you know, of all the ways that it's transferred in this movie, the transfer between Jay and Paul maybe has the most going for it if you want to make a moral argument about the way to do it. That it's fully consensual. Paul knows beforehand 
hey, this is what I'm signing up for, you know? That is better. Good point. <laughs> yeah. Did you hear about the sequel? Did you read about the sequel idea? I did read about the sequel idea, the t- terrible sequel idea. Yeah. So, like I said, this movie premiered out of competition at Cannes, where it was picked up by uh, Radius. And the CEO said in April of 2015, after this movie was opening and having this improbable box office success, he would want to do a sequel where they go back and find the origin of it. This is a horrible idea. This movie would only be made worse by explaining it. Mm-hmm. But, Mark, you know what title he wanted to give it? No. He was like, see, what you do, you don't try to do, like, It Follows 2 or It Follows Again. No, you flip it. Follow it. I hate that. (laughs) It's like total executive brain. It is. It's complete executive brain. It's also just throwing ideas out there, and they clearly must have gotten feedback that that was a terrible idea and abandoned it. The, like, box office performance of this thing is kind of amazing because what happened was, like, like I said, it had that Cannes premiere. They ran it at Sundance the next year. And then they screened it for the different theater chains. And all the theater chains except Arclight were like, eh, we're not that interested. Audiences aren't really, res- like, test audiences aren't really responding to it. We, we don't need it. So they were going to do a limited release and put it on VOD, like, basically immediately. And so... They have this limited release weekend where it's going to be opening on four screens. The first Thursday night of that limited release, the movie does crazy well. So then over that initial weekend, Radius put together a wide release plan to be executed in two weeks. That's... And then the movie was oh like... My God. The movie was like the most successful per screen average of an independent movie of that year. I knew the movie did well. I mean, it's a movie people know, even if they haven't seen it. Like this is not Yeah, a I mean movie it's not huge. It made like 15 million dollars yeah. in North America. It's not huge, but it definitely made enough of an impact that I feel like most people if asked would have a general idea of what the movie is. Right. And like a lot of horror movies, ultimately home video and on demand do really well with it. Do you know what the budget was for production? Uh 1.3 million. Oh, okay. Wow, yeah. Yeah, it was just made dirt cheap in the areas around Detroit where David Robert Mitchell grew up. He said in one interview that the playground they go to is the playground he played on as a kid. He has oh, three wow. first names. He sure does. <laughs> you know, as somebody who has two first names and a last name, but in the wrong order, I, I respect it. What's your middle name? my middle name. Oh, yeah. You Johnson. do have yeah. your names in the wrong order, traditionally. Yeah. So, you know, I, I respect it. I, res- I, respect, I respect him having three But, I mean, if you look at it, I feel like Mitchell is more of a last name that became a first name. Yeah. Like, it still has strong last name vibes. So, we've talked a little bit about the movie as being deliberately out of time. Does anybody want to, like, try to figure out when this is set? Because they have an electric typewriter in that pool. They have, like, an 80s TV, some modern cars, some older cars, the shell phone. Yeah, the cars were were really messing with me. The TV is what threw me off. I couldn't help but get like 2006, 2007 vibes. The point where cell phones exist, but it's still not unheard of not to have one. Yeah, yeah, where you still might have some old clunkers from the 90s, maybe hanging around in some parts of the country. You know what I mean? Like both in com- like uh, uh, cars and in like TVs, things like that. You know, with this sort of transitionary period between... You know, what we think of maybe as like modern technology and like old school technology. The digital era and the analog era. Yeah, yeah. So, I, Caleb, I was glad that you are in charge of getting us through the romance of this movie because there's very little in it that I would properly call romance. <laughs> you know, you're telling me, you know, I've always, I've always, I've never felt good about like my five points whenever I've been on the show. And this one is definitely one that I was like, oh boy, uh, here we go. You know what I mean? Because uh, yeah, definitely one of the few ones. I, I thought about back to your shaft one um, where, where- <laughs> That was a masterpiece of points. It was, exactly, exactly. It was, it, it, I would not argue otherwise because for one that might not have a lot of romance, you, you still found some really great and interesting discussions. So it, it was my inspiration. The other great one is Turbo, where sometimes a single conversation is broken up into multiple points. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Uh, I forget what the Shaft point, I'm trying to remember. There was so little romance in Shaft. I do remember that. Well, I remember your first point was from were the lyrics from his theme song about yep. how he's he he no, like he doesn't of need the anything. The theme song or a point. 
It said no one understands him but his woman, but the woman doesn't understand him. Yes, that's exactly it. 100%. Yep, yep. So that that was maybe one of my favorite points um, ever. So <sighs> well, to give context. It is going to be your job to talk about the romance of this movie, such as it is. We're talking about It Follows, David Robert Mitchell's 2015 horror movie about a, a curse, I guess. Is it a curse that's sexually transmitted? I call it a curse. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's some kind of or a haunting thing, haunting that just seeks out a target to kill it. It can take different appearances, and the only way to get rid of it is to have sex with somebody, and then the monster will chase them instead. Easy. But if they catch that person, they will come back for you. Right. The monster will work its way in reverse chronological order through the list. So that's what we were saying is the way to stave it off is for an unbroken chain of people having sex with each other. Can you imagine if someone went to an orgy with the monster following them? So in this hypothesis, the monster is far away that it will not arrive at the orgy. Yeah. In this hypothesis, maybe even like, let's say a person who doesn't know they have it following them goes to an orgy. Do you think the monster is sophisticated enough to follow that chain between like 20 people in one night? Yes, I do. Because I think it's magic. What? is sex to the monster does it like what does it represent or how does the monster procreate no it's like would a handy pass oral count pass the monster oh yeah i was wondering about this like what qualifies as sex to pass it off when greg doesn't see the monster for a while my first thought was oh she didn't come so the monster's still following her because i was wondering if you have to go to completion to pass the monster off that would be interesting i mean we don't get a lot of rules for the monster, and we don't know for sure that any of the rules we get are true. Yeah, I mean, I don't think the movie needs to answer this, but it is fun to consider. Yes. Because also, like, if it has to be P in V, what about gay couples? Or is it a straight people-only curse? But what if a bi person has sex with, like, a man and then has sex with a woman after? Would it count? Depends on how homophobic the monster is. I would think it's not a homophobic monster. I think this monster is an equal opportunity killer. Good for them. Just like the Babadook. Yeah, I mean, the the monster is the real hero. And it probably hangs out with the Babadook. I was reminded that the reason the Babadook became a queer icon is because Netflix accidentally categorized it in their LGBTQ movie section due to a coding error. And that's how I it all started. That. That <laughs> because there's no actual, like, gay characters in the movie. So they decided, someone decided the Babadook is queer when they found it there. I just assumed it was because he had a hat. No, there was something even dumber to start it off. Well, Caleb, every week we break down the romantic plotline of a movie into five points to get us through the romance and decide whether it makes any sense. So as our guest, it's up to you to walk us through the romance, such as it is, of It Follows. Great. So here we go. The first one, and with the first one, whenever I'm on, I think I like to use it to kind of set some context, if I can. And my first point is that they're young and happy. What are you reading? Idiot? Is it any good? I don't know yet. It's about Paul. Hey, Jay. (laughs) Hey, Paul. You know, at the beginning, it's honestly what one thing surprised me from what I understood about the movie before I knew it was a sexually transmitted curse. So when I first caught on the movie, I was like, wait, these people are very young. I, I anticipated it to be people in their like late 20s, early 30s, like most horror movies tend to be. Oh, but so many of the classic horrors are, you know, Friday the 13th and Halloween. These are t- scream even. These are teenagers. You know, that is a really good point. And I think what kind of threw me is often in those movies, it's obvious that they're played by people who aren't. You know what I mean? Or at least nowadays, sure. you know, it's so obvious that, okay, no, this person's like 40 paying, playing an 18-year-old. These so-called teenagers in the most recent Scream movie are pretty laughable. Right. And so the fact that they actually looked really young in this shocked me. And so for me, I bring that up as the first point because I think it kind of sets us up for a lot of where this movie goes. In that, you know, these, in a lot of ways, they're children, you know, enjoying playing time at the pool, farting, which is maybe one of my favorite movie farts ever. uh, When Yara, reading her uh, book, says she has an idea. 
Paul asks what, and Yara just farts. It's classic uh, movie tomfoolery. And they're just hanging out, watching movies, enjoying each other's company. And I think, to me, it kind of really sets up where some of these relationships begin versus where they end, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, it seems like these kids are late teens. Like, they're out of high school. Jay, our main character, played by Micah Monroe, is... I think in like the uh, commuting to the local college. I don't know that all of them are in college. I think some of them are just working. Yeah, yeah. There's a point where I think Yara and Paul, they work at the ice cream uh, shop. Which they could do while being students. There's just nothing that suggests they are students. Someone mentions like, I was on varsity sport or something of that nature that made it sound post-school. At least post-high school. Yeah, these kids are out of high school. Because I mean, there's a moment where Greg and um, and Jay are talking, and, and Greg's like, oh, they essentially talk about it's lonely that everybody else left, but they're still in town. You know, everyone else is off in college doing their thing, and they stayed behind. So yeah, so that, 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 that was the moment where I kind of started realizing, oh, they're not in high school, they're maybe early college. It's kind of that formative transition years, and, and I think in a lot of ways, this is kind of what clued me into thinking this is almost a coming-of-age movie in a lot of ways. Yeah, for sure. I think it's interesting, you know, we're going to be talking a lot about sex in this and about, like, passing this monster through sex. You know, there is this sort of old idea in horror movies going back to the slashers of the 70s and 80s of, like, people have sex and they're killed because of it. Certainly in Friday the 13th, that's made text. And in Halloween, a lot of the teenagers who get killed get killed by Michael, like, when they're having sex or after having sex. And... What's interesting and it follows is the monster is passed sexually. This curse is passed sexually. But it's not really that the characters are being killed for having sex. Like, we're told, like, most of the characters have had sex before and not been killed for it. So it's not that, like, oh, now they've decided to be teens having sex and that's it. It's just that whatever this curse is, this is how it is passed. It doesn't even really feel like a safe sex allegory movie. No. Which it could, like, you could easily feel. You know, where some sex is fine and, you know, one time is all it takes to kill you. Only once, you might say. Only once. As a reminder, Only Once is our favorite Mormon movie about why teenagers shouldn't have sex. But this movie is very, it does not feel anti-sex at all. No. I was actually struck by something David Robert Mitchell said in an interview with The Guardian, where he said, actually, in It Follows, sex is what keeps you alive. Yeah. Uh, And he said, uh, love and sex are two ways in which we can, at least temporarily, push death away. See, to me, the idea of, like, coming of age, I couldn't help but start, and I know it's complicated by the fact that a lot of them have have had sex before and things like that, but to me, it often feels like, in this movie, sex can almost be a demarcation between being young and being an adult. And with being an adult, becomes comes this awareness of, one day you will die. There's this anxiety. It, it, like, allegorically, thematically speaking. And so, you know, I, I think often... Um, uh, to me, that that's kind of how I ended up kind of parsing this movie is with that idea of sex as a demarcation point between childhood and adulthood and adulthood being these anxieties. And then you return to sex, you return to love, anything to kind of forget about the the, the, the inevitability of, of mortality. I think that makes a lot of sense, especially as you think about Greg as the guy who would be sort of less aware of his own mortality and the limits of his own life. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is a really fantastic point. Yeah, he he he's not seeing it coming. He's not looking for it, and so it takes him. He by doesn't surprise. believe in death. He's young and hot. These dang kids. These dang young hot kids. And in a way, this kind of brings me to to point number two. In a way of wait, which guy? Because you know, at, at this point in the movie, I kind of assume you know, for for like much of the early stages of the movie, it's easy to assume. Okay, it's Hugh slash God. What's his real name? Jeff. That they find out. Yeah. His name is Jeff Redmond. I caught it because it's the same as my last name. (laughs) I'm keeping my eye on you. I showed my students, we did a a thing about conspiracy theories, and I showed them a video explaining the lizard people conspiracy, because they had to like do presentations on conspiracy theories, and I gave them a list of ones they could pick from. Lizard people, not on it. But I was like, just to like talk about like conspiracies, like every day sometimes I would like start off with what that wasn't on the list. And one day we did lizard people. And in it, the guy says that a possible sign of a lizard person is that they can have red hair. <laughs> so I got a lot of questions for the rest of that day. I'm sure you did. I'm sure you did. I, I, I bet that was a blast. It was. That actually honestly sounds really great right now. Especially like, you know, talking about disinformation and, and checking out and quote unquote doing your own research as a lot of the conspiracies want you to do, you know. Uh, I think it went well. It was not my idea. Oh, really? No, it was another teacher. 
Wow, fascinating. Okay. Uh, well, th- to my point, sorry, I keep distracting us in that for much of this movie, I'm almost led to believe it's going to be Hugh. But then, you know, of course, Greg shows up. Paul is there. Paul is always there. Paul is yeah. always there. There's some real incel energy from Paul. Completely. I and, and don't and, like Paul. Yeah, I'm not a fan of Paul either. And so to kind of stick with point number two for a second, because we're almost getting to point three. Is that like the point two, you know, we have, of course, as, as Greg shows up, Paul shows up, you know, I, I as I'm watching the movie, I'm wondering, okay, who 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 is this? Because I think in a lot of horror movies, there do tend to be still some sort of relationship. And yeah. this is, of course, after Hugh has uh, passed on it to Jay. And it's around here that we get to point number three, which is that Paul is creepy. He's supportive, yeah. but but very creepy. I think throughout, he's always like, oh, I can come over. Oh, do you need me? Oh, you know, just any chance to be next to her. Yeah, we're told that, like, they kissed each other, but it feels like it was, like, in middle school or something like that. Like, it's too long for it to be anything more than, like, a joke now. But he's still hung up on it. He's still hung up on it, and there are, like, one too many comments of, like, if Paul's there, better lock your door. That's, like, that's coming from somewhere. Like, yeah. the sense that Paul might, like, push the boundaries of this relationship. That's not coming out of nowhere. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, it, it, it's something that we're aware of as an audience. And they're then, you know, it's it's interesting to see that they're aware of this same thing, too. But they all still seem really cool with him. And I think, you know, it's interesting that there are times throughout where the group kind of discusses Jay and, and how, like, oh, you know, he was the new guy you know, inferring that there are others, or, or I think there's even one conversation where they're playing around this interesting card game that almost looks like they're playing with tarot cards, where... where They're playing Old Maid. Old Maid. I've never... What is what is Old Maid? I've never... You can play it with a normal deck of cards. Um, It's just a matching game. It's kind of like Go Fish. But you pick uh, the okay. cards out of people's hands, and you yeah. don't want the Old Maid. Right. So the idea is, like, to make matches and not be left with the Old Maid, which is, you know, a card that can't be matched. You can play it with a standard deck of cards, usually with, like, the Queen of Spades or something. If you don't get matched, you lose. You're followed by a haunted thing. The old maid. She's a curse. (laughs) Just like, you know, an old maid deck is designed to make it easier for kids to play the game, there could be, like, an old maid version of It Follows that is the sex-free version of It Follows. There you go. Hey, we're starting something new here. That's fascinating. That kids. adds a whole other layer. I think this movie is is relatively good about adding layers. It, nothing's there by accident, you know? You know, we're talking about Paul being creepy, and I think it's constantly there. He constantly brings up the fact that, like, they kiss, and it's like, it sounds like you were 10. It sounds like you were, like, 12 at the oldest. Get over it. There's this scene, which I assume we're going to get to later, where he's talking to Jay towards the end of the movie, and he's like, you could pass it on to someone else. And it's like, Paul, we get it. You're just saying, please let me have sex with you. Yes. like, And that that's kind of the interesting thing throughout this movie is he's, well, in a way, it kind of questions all men. Like none of the men in this movie are particularly blameless. You know, like each one kind of commits their own maybe level of, I'm going to use the word violence, you know, it, it, you know, and I think for Paul, he uses a selfless act for something selfish and and he's kind of pressures for it in, in, in a lot of the time, in a way. He asks repeatedly, and she's like, no, no, no. Ultimately, they're all self-absorbed. Yeah. And Paul and Jeff both think that they are doing the right thing. Jeff thinks he's doing the right thing by, after having sex with Jay, telling her, okay, so a monster's going to follow you, and here's what you have to do to avoid the monster. And Paul thinks he's doing the right thing by saying, like, okay, yeah, like, I'll have sex with you to take the monster away. But they're both using her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and in a way, Greg as well. I mean, it's not like he doesn't understand, even if even if he doesn't really believe in the monster, it's not like he doesn't understand that she has something going on. She's in a vulnerable state. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think this is getting to your fourth point. But, you know, Paul asks Jay why she chose Greg to be the person she had sex with to get rid of the monster instead of choosing Paul. And she says it's because, like, well, you know, Greg's like a big guy. It seems like he might be better suited to, like, fight his way. And she says that they'd had sex before, too. Right. They had sex in high school, and it was fine. And I just couldn't help feeling like she had sex with Greg. She doesn't want to have sex with you, Paul. Oh, Paul sorry. creeps me out. I don't like Paul. I don't like yeah, Paul. Yeah, no, completely. <laughs> I mean, there's, the, there's uh, that moment where he talks to her about how they all looked at porn on somebody's yard. Then he's actively looking at Hugh's porn in, in that, you know, stash house attic. 
you know, there, oh, there's... you mean uh, Playpen Magazine, <laughs> one of this movie's many <laughs> off-brand <laughs> objects? <laughs> no, Playpen. I think Playpen's a real magazine. Is it? Like it's a. See, I assumed it was like a mix-up of Playboy and Penthouse. Somehow, that's maybe. also what I thought. It might be. Yeah. I think it's maybe it's just not the first movie that it showed up in. I mean, even more than the Playpen magazines, what I enjoyed seeing was anytime by the pool or on the porch, they drank a red can labeled cola. Oh, here's okay. Here's a list of some properties the magazine Playpen has appeared in. Third Rock from the Sun, That 70s Show, Bones, CSI, Freaks and Geeks, Friends, Lost, Malcolm in the Middle, The Office, Scrubs, Workaholics. That is why I did not really place it as something weird, I think. That's a real Let's Potato Chips list. Yeah. It, yeah. It's the Let's Potato Chips of porn. Get your damn hand off of my lettuce. But all that is to kind of to, to say that, like, you know, as Greg comes around, it's obvious to see Paul is jealous, right? He's he's unhappy about it. I think even when they meet with Hugh, he, there's a little protectiveness there. And, and, and in a way that kind of combines the wait, which guy? Because, you know, there are a few people and they do kind of mention repeatedly, like in the old maid scene, like, okay, Jamie seems to have like a, a few guys, but she never really commits. And so that does kind of then bring us to from Paul is creepy to point number four, which you've already touched on, which is that Jay ends up choosing Greg to pass it on to. Yeah, at first, spoiler alert. At this point, they have all to some extent experienced fighting the monster that only Jay can see. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know, and they all seem to believe her, uh, except for Greg, you know, even even though, as Paul points out, you know, he broke the, the chair on the back of something. And so I, I think that's kind of an interesting part, part of the movie and part of almost this. I'm, I'm, spoiler alert, I'm considering kind of a romance with Paul. So like this moment where she ends up choosing Greg instead because of his, I don't know, maybe his stereotypically masculine presence and energy and because they've had sex before. And I think it's kind of interesting this sort of, uh, 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 what's the word? Casualness almost in a way of her treatment of sex before versus now, if that makes sense. And so I think, you know, with with Greg, of course, afterwards, he doesn't still believe. He, she kind of continues to lock herself up. Paul continues to dote. And, of course, the monster eventually gets Greg. And I think then, you know, as we've kind of already talked on Greg, in, in the end, it kind of brings me to, like, point five, which kind of covers the last little bit of the movie. So, you know, after it gets Greg, she continues to run. There's an interesting boat scene that I wasn't yes. exactly sure how to interpret. I had thoughts, but then I had some other thoughts, and I think it's a little ambiguous. There's a scene where she realizes the monster is after her again because Greg has been killed by the monster. So she drives back out to the lake and like runs to the shore, and she sees three dudes on a boat, and she takes off her outerwear. She's like had a bathing suit on underneath, and the next time we see her, she is in the car with her hair wet. Yeah, I didn't really know what was going on there either. I was like, is she going to pass the monster off to one of them? I think that is what happened. See, that's the thing. For me, I had kind of two competing theories that may or may not, just because with how quickly as the, the monster shows back up, is I was like, okay, maybe she tried to swim out, couldn't come back in, and she's like, just, just says she couldn't do it. Or, and I think the more likely reading and how I originally read it too, was that she went out, she passed it to them, and then she 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 drives home, and I, I think that's kind of a, a there's a desperation maybe to that. Yeah, she's like pushed to her breaking point. Yeah, it feels like a I just need to get this out of my life. Right, but it doesn't work because then she sees the naked dude on her roof. That is the monster, and she seems to be kind of aware that it wouldn't work because like soon after, like right when she gets back home, she's I, I, it's another conversation with Paul about how. You know, maybe she'll give it to him and, and like, you know, uh, uh, what to do next. I think she, she in a way, understands that it's, that it was only temporary and even, like, more temporary than Greg, in a way. You know, th- this these men or man who she didn't know at all versus Greg, who she kind of knew. And I think that kind of in- interestingly touches on some of the themes about, you know, what kind of keeps death away, as you had mentioned the quote about, you know, what, what what kind of sex, you know, just trysts somebody who you kind of know, somebody who you, you care about. Um, it's a, a, to me, that was a, a, that's a point of the movie that I, I that kind of stuck with me and kind of I, I thought about just because of different implications of that scene with the, the boat. And so I think in a way this does bring me to to five. So after it doesn't work, 
I'm going to call it five. She chooses to trust Paul. Dumb. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, he, he's like, hey, do you remember when we first kissed? Do you trust me? And then they end up going to a pool. And I couldn't quite tell exactly what building it was. I don't know if maybe y'all have. Y'all could tell. I, I Maybe it was a community center. I couldn't quite tell. Yeah, I think it's a public indoor pool. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's about what I what I figured. And so they end up going to to the pool, bringing a bunch of electronics, putting it around, uh, uh, and and having her stay in the pool until the uh, the monster shows up, till it shows up, and in a bit to try and electrocute it. Which, as we say, was a bad plan because they did not account for the relative sizes of an indoor swimming pool and a bathtub. So, like, while throwing a hairdryer in a bathtub might electrocute somebody throwing it in a swimming pool will not do a whole lot well at least the threat of it over a bathtub is enough to cause a murderous person to feel trapped until the cops come as we learned in pool boy nightmare oh yeah that's absolutely right another another pool horror thriller movie thriller i guess it's thriller thriller. the pool sequence in this movie is very cat people mark i was thinking about that it is I like it. It's kind of funny to me how it just starts chucking things at her. Yes. That's my favorite part. It felt like a video game. It felt like having to dodge things that the boss is throwing. And then after it throws a certain number of things, you'll get to rush in and like punch it. And then it might start throwing things for a bit again. Felt like a boss battle. I can't believe Paul shoots Yara. Right? Yeah. He's busy trying to shoot the invisible creature. He shoots Yara in the leg. Thankfully, at least just the leg. And then what's Kelly? Is that that her that that her the character's name? Uh, Jay's sister finally comes up with the brilliant idea of just using a sheet. Yeah, it works great. So of course this plan the plan doesn't work, obviously, which in a way is for the best, as since the monster yeah throws things at her. So you know it, it would have electrocuted her if, if if it had. And I think even Yara says, "Oh, thank God, it didn't work." <laughs> and so you know after it doesn't work, though they still maybe think they killed it or not because when they end up shooting it in the there's head... There's a lot of blood. Yeah, there's a lot of blood in the water. And then afterwards, of course, Jay and Paul do have sex. And, you know, it, it is kind of interesting how it's unclear if they think that it's spreading to him. Uh, I think they kind of assume that, yes, it will. And so she continues... She, she trusts him. I think that's kind of ends be where the, the movie ends up. You know, the last shot being them holding hands walking down the street. And it's hard to... Yeah, ugh. Right? It's hard to tell how much of that is... It's one thing for Paul to be like, let like pass it on, like just pass it on, and she's finally like, fine, I will pass it on, fine, I will have sex with you. But then them like holding hands, I'm like, nah, don't hold hands with this guy, he stinks. Right, like it feels all very manipulative, and so it's interesting to me that the relationship continues. Is it because he's been supportive? Is it just because he is just a manipulative shit? Like, what's? I I, I was very curious, but like, she, I guess she decides to trust him, and then I guess that expands to just trusting him with everything. If that makes sense. I don't think this movie dislikes Paul as much as we do. It doesn't. I think the movie is okay with Paul, which is one of the things I don't love about it. I do think it, it I do think it wants us to root for Paul through a lot of it when we like that it wants us to think like, "Oh, Paul's being sweet. Just trust Paul." You know, "Oh, Paul, you know, is being supportive. This wouldn't be an issue if, you know, I I, I do think that yeah, the movie does support Paul in a, in a lot of ways. So, after talking about all of this, do we find the romance of It Follows believable, such as it is? There's so little of it. It's barely romantic. It's mostly negotiating who will have sex with each other. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, it's like the only real romantic part is her date with Hugh slash Jeff at the beginning, which is a nice date. And then they have sex. I believe that. And then he kidnaps her. Uh, that part, less so. You know, that that is kind of the thing is I think in a lot of ways that I do believe it because it is so non not nonchalant, but it's not like, yeah, it's not very romantic. I think in a lot of there are a lot of relationships that are like that. And unfortunately, too, you know, men as a, a vector of violence against women is also relatively believable as well. So, like, I do generally kind of feel a lot of these relationships are unfortunately really believable are they very romantic that's a very different question that's not you know as a romantic relationship that's not i think that's almost a non-starter with all of them yeah i do think we have to consider at least some of the paul stuff because paul at the very least feels romantic attraction paul wants to be with jay paul wants to have sex with jay 
Paul ends the movie holding hands with Jay. It's a happy ending for Paul. Until he dies. And if you think of trust as maybe the, you know, the basis of a relationship, and if, you know, part of the end is that she trusts him completely, then, you know, then it, then maybe that, it, you know, that would be considered a romantic ending in a way, and that they trust each other, they spend time with each other. So yeah, I, I'm, I am kind of think that, that there is more romance to that relationship, for sure. So, Caleb, where would you rate the believability of this movie? Zero to ten. Um, I think surprisingly high and let's say if i'm if i'm just going to kind of focus on maybe paul and and jay i I would give it like a seven maybe eight in in a lot of the ways um just sort of until i think seven just because you have me as a real relationship something believable until the end where they're holding hands to me that doesn't feel like it's long for this world not just because it the monster shuffles behind them but because it the basis of their relationship doesn't feel rock solid to me what about y'all what do y'all think oh yeah um i would i i was also thinking like maybe an eight in part because like i agree with you that the relationship at the end is not very well set up but it's just unfortunately very easy for me to imagine Paul, who has pressured Jay through so much of all of this to, like, continue doing that as the movie is wrapping up and being like, oh, now, like, you know, we're in this together. We should be together doing this. I mean, we all know Paul's going to die, like, immediately, right? Yeah, and then Jay's going to have to go have sex with someone else. Yeah, like, he stands no chance chance against this monster. So Um, I I think I'm an eight, actually. Yeah, I think an eight sounds right. That is surprisingly consistent. Do you think that any of the leads, Paul, Jay, Greg, Jeff, are dateable? Um, to be honest, not particularly. Um, Jay's the only one who's in conversation. Yeah. And even her, I'm not really. Yeah, I, I think I I agree. Yeah, we don't I get think... a lot of normal Jay. Like, we get right. a few minutes of normal Jay. Jay on the date is fun, but the majority of the movie, she's being haunted slash hunted. So it's hard to say. Yeah. Based on, like, pre-haunted Jay. on the date is fun. Jay, she's, like, she's fun in a very, like, 19-year-old way. Yes. I mean, that's the main thing is she's young, but, like, the game where you, like, say, oh, I want to swap places with this person and the other person has to guess why is kind of fun. Yeah, I think, I think... If I had to pick one, it would be Jay, I think. I think, you know, and and if by dateable you mean I would go on a date, one, you know, I, 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 then then I would also have to say Jay, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, the question of, like, figuring out who you would date in this movie is a tough one. <laughs> I would date it. Um, you know, very committed. I would committed. Yara. She's Just wants to sarcastic, to reads the idiot, and makes fart jokes. Honestly, that... Yeah, I think Yara is the clear answer. Obviously, yeah. I was going to say Yara as well. Um... If okay. I had to pick one person, it would definitely be BR for the same reasons. Well-read, really fun, funny, very supportive, gets shot, and doesn't seem to really even blame anybody <laughs> for that. She's shockingly She's totally cool, cool with it. about being shot in the leg. Um, I think we've kind of all said we do not expect Jay and Paul to stay together, in large part because Paul is going to get killed. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And even if, if he, he didn't, I, I would hope and I would expect that Jay would kind of wise up to like the sort of manipulation. Now. Caleb, several of the movies we watch have been adapted to stage musicals. Should there be an It Follows musical? You know, that's a good question that I think I had a tougher time deciding than maybe I should have. But I think at the end of the day, and maybe for the first time on this podcast, I think the answer is no. I think for me, this is such a movie. And I I think, um, I don't think the liveness of a theater would be able to actually do that justice. I think because this is so rooted in that genre as well of horror, I, I think this one is, is good where it's at. You know, I think this is the right media for it. The magic trick of only some characters being able to see the monster mm-hmm. is harder to pull off on stage. You also don't get distance. Like the monster has to be minuscule at times. Like that's a really good point. a mile away across the schoolyard you would have to somehow recreate the distance and also the sense that as fast as she runs the monster can still catch up at walking speed and that's hard to do on the only way to play that game would be like with turntables yeah even then you're not getting a lot of distance no you can't have like the ant-sized monster that's just out of the corner of your eye 
I mean, really one of my favorite shots in the movie is the one where they go to the school and it just kind of circles around the hallways and you see like outside and there's somebody kind of walking in a straight line and then it kind of circles around and that person's closer. You know what I mean? I think that's one of my favorite mm-hmm. shots and I just don't know if you could do something like that. And I think it's so key to the feeling of this movie and the feeling of being followed and that dread that I just don't know if um, that you could do in a theater. All right. So no musical for It Follows. And uh, I think that's about it. So, Caleb, thanks so much for coming back and talking with us. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me again. And thanks again to Connor for suggesting this movie. I'm glad we checked it out. Thank you, Connor. Next week, we'll be taking another listener suggestion and watching the 90s rom-com starring Jennifer Aniston, Picture Perfect. This movie continues our run of surprise Kevin Dunn appearances. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Left Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovetheleftpod at gmail.com. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts, to help other people find the show. All right, Caleb, last question. What is the best piece of dating advice we got from It Follows? That is a good one that I, I, I'm actually completely struggling with. I think I'm going to have to say the best dating advice that I've received from It Follows is, you know, make sure you're with the right person. Don't let anybody pressure you into a relationship. Uh, my advice is if you have some awkward silences on a date, maybe try a game. That's a pretty fun game. Mine also comes from that date, which is if you're going on a date with someone who won't go to a movie, don't have sex with them. <laughs> All right. Unsurprising advice from Will Redmond. Until next time, I'm gay. And I'm a ginger. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. Look at me, threw your arms in the air and said you're crazy. Five days since you tackled me, I still got the reference on both my knees. It's been three days since the afternoon. You realize it's not my fault, but a moment too soon. Yesterday you'd forgiven me, and now I'll sit back and wait till you say you're sorry.